Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come to you once again now, thankful to you for the Word of God, thankful to you for how we are able to understand the Word of God because of the Spirit of God. And we come to you thankful that the Word of God, illumined by the Spirit of God, gives us the means and the power with which to live righteously as the people of God. And so, Lord, we come gathered this morning as your church, asking you to illumine our hearts, to teach us to be a bride of Christ that would be pleasing to him, pure in all respects, obedient to him in every facet, humble before him, and doing his will with great humility and thankfulness. We pray that today would help us achieve that goal. We pray in Christ's name, amen. None of us like stinging words, and the only reason they sting is because they're true. When they're said to you, and one church experienced some stinging words, and the words stung very deeply because they were from the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus had just been given very high marks and commendation for their, their hard work for the gospel, for their accuracy of the gospel, for their suffering for the gospel. But then the Lord said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They had abandoned their first love. And the question is, of course, which love is that? What love are we speaking of here? Was it their love for Christ or was it their love for one another? Well, I think clearly we could say that the two are a package deal. If you abandon one, you have abandoned both. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. That's love for Christ. If you have love for one another, the two go together. There are those that would say, well, I fall into the category of I love Christ. I just don't love his church. Here's what that category is. It is selfish, egotistical, greedy, mercenary, self-seeking, conceited, vain, insensitive, self-absorbed, narcissistic, ungrateful, arrogant, vain, inconsiderate, illogical, unchristian, inflated, big-headed, proud, stuck-up, should I go on? That is not a legitimate category. It's superior. It's smug. And frankly, it's anti-God. Now, why would we say that in such strong terms? This was so important to Christ in regard to the church at Ephesus that he threatened to remove their lampstand. I will come and remove your lampstand from among you, from its place. I will remove my blessing. I will remove my care. I will remove my, my glory from that church body. And you think God won't do that? Ezekiel chapter 10, God declared that he would remove his glory from the temple because of the disobedience of Israel. And he did it. He removed his glory and the glory didn't return until Christ was born. Nation, uh, Israel was a nation purchased by God by virtue of his call to Abraham and, and his rescue of, of these people, but they fell into continual idolatry century after century. And God removed his glory from them. He took them into captivity. Now Ezekiel 42 reminds us that God's glory will return to Israel in the coming age, but not yet. And the local church is no different. The, the local church is either, either striving to obey Christ, restrained further and further from obedience to Christ, 
And Christ was so clear with Ephesus. He said, you were once a great church a generation ago. You, you loved me. You demonstrated this love toward me. And so he warns them. And the church at Ephesus received a stinging rebuke. But if we went back a number of decades, how would the church at Jerusalem stand up? How would they stand to the scrutiny? And that's the question that we've been asking each week as we look at our series, Our Gift to Jesus, and that is the gift of a healthy, purified, humble bride of Christ, a local church that would make the Lord proud. And that's to help us prepare for our upcoming Joyful Generosity campaign because if we're going to ask you to give money, you need to know what it is you're giving money to. And we want to we give to a, to a church that's doing the work of Christ. And we've been examining the Church of Jerusalem as a model of biblical ecclesiology, the study of the church, a church with biblical obedient priorities. And we've seen that they are a well-ordered church, they are a reliant church, they are a praying church, and they are a sacrificial church. Today I want to examine what it means to be a loving church. What, what does that look like? Now, I just preached a miniseries on Sunday nights on unconditional love, so this really should fit in very well with that line of thinking. I, that's my hope and prayer, at least. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and we'll kind of be bouncing back and forth between Acts 2, Acts 4, and Acts 6. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 44, spend a little bit of time there. And, but while you're finding Acts 2, I want you to consider a quality that this church had that, that led them down this path of being a loving church. They, they didn't just start off as a loving church. They didn't just meet together and say, let's just all love one another. That's not what happened. They started, they had a starting point. So what was this quality? And just, just listen, you don't have to follow along. Acts one fourteen. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. One accord is a Greek word that means with one mind, with single-mindedness. When Peter and John were released from prison and went to the church, Acts 4.24 says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They lifted their voices together. It's the same Greek word. One mind, single-mindedness. Acts 5 verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, meaning that they were gathered together in Solomon's porch on the one side of the temple. But all together isn't just a word that indicates that they were physically together. It's the same Greek word. They were together in one mind. They weren't just physically together. They were there with one purpose. The leaders of the church of Jerusalem, they wrote in Acts 15.25, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. One accord, same word, one mind, single-mindedness. That's why, by the way, the elders of Grace Bible Church only make unanimous decisions because we are to be of one mind, one accord. And so the church was, that. this is their quality. They were one-minded in prayer, in worship, in their gathering, in decision-making. And that led, this, this one-mindedness translated into a, a, a high quality, a unique preoccupation. And that was the fact that they were preoccupied with loving one another, with taking care of each other, of each other's welfare. So I want to be just as practical and down-to-earth as we can this morning and I'd like to give you four ways that we can be a loving church 
like the Jerusalem church. Four ways that we can be a loving church like the Jerusalem church. First, look out for one another. Look out for one another. Acts chapter 2, look with me at verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I know that makes us nervous. If you don't have much money, that's exciting to you. If you have a lot of money, that makes you scared. What is he about to say? How literally is he going to take the Bible? Well, you have to understand the unique situation in Jerusalem. The church had to act like an independent new society. They had no choice. They had to do it. This wasn't some sort of endorsement of communal living. This wasn't an endorsement of the redistribution of wealth at the expense of a godly work ethic. Obviously, later revelation in the New Testament makes it very clear that money is to be earned through working and that family members have the first responsibility to take care of one another. That's clear in the Bible. But this was a unique time in which both of those resources might be taken away from you, your ability to work and your family, and you might be destitute. The generosity was an immediate response to the fact that because they were followers of Christ, they were now going at cross purposes with traditional Judaism. And this is so important because Judaism encompassed every area of life, your family, your livelihood, your business, your your future inheritance, your land ownership. And if you, by virtue of following Christ, were saying, I'm rejecting the old system, it was going to cost you It could cost you your family. It could cost you your inheritance. You could be written out of the will. You could be kicked out of the family business. You could be kicked out of the family home. And so there was literally a a crisis among the new believers. And so there was this instant need in the church to help those now suffering for their faith. One scholar also notes, he says, it may well be that in the first flush of enthusiasm, the early church lived in this kind of way. In other words, the newfound faith that they all had, it created this, what we might call a burning and a yearning and a churning in their heart to do something, to do something. I've had some of you come to me and say, my heart is so filled with Christ, give me something to do. I have to do something. And we love that. They were eager to serve one another. This lifestyle of making certain that no one was in need is reiterated again. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we see this repeated. And Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There's the single-mindedness again. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then, by the way, this is our precedent for saying, here's what generosity looks like in a church member. We get an example. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, by the way, this is a partial fulfillment, at least partially, of the Old Testament promise that the people of God would not have any poor among them. 
Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, that God's true people should not have poor among them. Those with estates or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles. And the, the unique phrase here is that they laid them at the apostles' feet. This is legal language. This says, I am transferring ownership of this from, from me to the church for you to do with as you please. Now, there's another aspect to their care for one another, which isn't stated explicitly here in the text, but it is heavily implied in Acts, and it is stated explicitly and directly later in the New Testament. Not only did they look out for each other by taking care of the least among them, of of caring for the, the basic physical needs, they looked out for each other by generously financing the spread of the gospel and the discipleship of the church. Go over with me to Acts chapter 6. And I know we hit Acts 6 just about every time, but it's such a a key passage for us. Acts 6, verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I actually have a friend in ministry who called me and said, You know, I I know I'm new in the church and and I'm new to the ministry as a young man. He said, But it... The, the, the elders told me that it's my responsibility to mow the lawn and to make sure that the windows are cleaned every, before every Sunday. Is that right? And I, I said, you need to quit. Don't mow the lawn and wait for them to do it. Well, what if it grows high? They'll mow it when it gets bad enough. You devote yourself. Look with me at verse four. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this is important for us because these are the 12 apostles. They were the first pastors of the church and they devoted themselves to prayer to the ministry of the word what does this mean it means that the church was financially supporting these men instantly but the 12 also did something else they confirmed the appointment of seven more men to lead the ministry of care in the church look at verse 3 therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty Now, many have, and I may have done this even, many have called these essentially the first deacons, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, those supporting the ministry. I think it's even more likely and more accurate to say these were the first associate pastors. These were the first helping pastors. At least one of them, Stephen, was a preacher and an apologist of great skill. Look at verse 10 with me. This is speaking of Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. My point here is that one of the first things that the church in Jerusalem did was to appoint a pastoral staff of 19 men. Can you imagine what we could do in Kern County with 19 full-time pastors? That would be phenomenal. And no doubt, the spirit of giving and care that they were living up to in the church of Jerusalem was based on Old Testament law. They knew the Old Testament, these Jews did, and it's reiterated then in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That means money, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching for the spirit. The the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. This is the idea of being doubly generous because the church valued the preached word. They valued the word of God and they valued the the leadership that was 
was given to them. And it's very comfortable for me to say this because thankfully the elders of Grace Bible Church understand this quite well. You apparently understand it quite well because of your continual and consistent generous giving. So I know I preached to the choir on that point. But my point is, is that the church cared for one another in, in every possible respect. You know, in terms of looking out for the, the basic needs of each other in our own body, I have seen and I've observed and witnessed tremendous acts of sacrifice which would blow your mind and which I've been asked not to share publicly and I'm dying to because they're so good. I would evaluate that we would fall into the category of the Thessalonian church which loved one another but to whom Paul said, you're doing great, but do more, do better, excel still more. So let me give you two simple ways to live this out, to look out for one another. Very simple. First of all, meet a need when you can. Meet a need when you can and when you see it. This means being in vital relationships with others so that you can know their needs and you can be in a relationship where somebody is comfortable enough to share a need with you. And the second way, the elders maintain a benevolence fund. In fact, traditionally in our church on the Lord's table day, which is today, we ask you to give a little extra something back in the giving box back there toward our benevolence fund so that we might help those members in dire need. And it's been a great blessing both to us and to those that we have helped. Very simply, meet a need and then consider giving to the benevolence fund. There's a second way to be a loving church. Not only do we take care of one another, look out for one another, we worship with one another. Worship with one another. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2. Now, this might seem obvious, but I want to deconstruct this a little bit and give you some component parts of worshiping with one another. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. Attending the temple together. They, they continued going to the temple. That's what they were used to doing. They were still worshiping the same God. They were still worshiping the Yahweh of Old Testament. They just now understood that the sacrifices that were being offered weren't necessary anymore. That Christ would be the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. But they went to the temple together. This is the same word that we used so many times before. They went with one mind. They weren't just physically together. They were there with the same heart, the same mind, the same attitude, the same intention, the same purpose. There weren't families emotionally and spiritually phoning it in. They weren't families that were not caring. They weren't showing up to church with a cold heart, hoping that somebody would build a fire in the fireplace of their souls. They were believers coming together with their fire lit and they just wanted it stoked to burn even brighter and greater into a hot blaze. They came with one mind. Let me give you some thoughts on some practical ways to be a, a loving church by worshiping together. And it goes beyond just showing up. But that is the first one, just show up. Be here consistently. And, and I don't say that for your sake. I say that for others' sake because it's unloving to be inconsistent in your attendance because we need each other for encouragement. Would you rather sing a hymn with three people, two of which are out of tune, or with 300 people? Then we cover up the out of tune people. That's why we, we sing together. But be here consistently. Could I offer this? Why is Sunday so often a default day for a vacation? 
Instead of taking your vacation from Friday to Friday, take it from Monday to Saturday. That's not much of a sacrifice, is it? What did Jesus do on Sunday for you? He, not much. He just raised himself from the dead. Now, frankly, I only miss Sundays because the elders love me and make me do it. They make me take a little time off on occasion. But our heartbeat, heartbeat of, of the pastoral staff and the elders and the deacons, our heartbeat is to be here, to be here. Here's another way to love, be a loving church by worshiping with one another. Sing with all of your heart. Sing with all of your heart. Ephesians 5 says we are not singing only to the Lord, but to each other. Now, don't raise your hand or don't elbow the person next to you, but do you know how deflating it is to stand next to someone who won't sing? That's discouraging. And you might say, well, I can't sing. I would say you won't sing. But my voice isn't a singer's voice. Then your voice isn't a Christian's voice because all Christians are singers. Singing, listen, singing is not a musical test. I know this because most of you would fail. Singing is a spiritual test. Singing is a spiritual test. Do you love Christ? Then you sing. And if you think you can't carry a tune, then you sing your monotone at the, at the highest level and we praise God for it. You know what makes me sad? There are popular secular songs today. For some reason, it's popular to use the word hallelujah in a secular song. Heard this in a grocery store the other day and I wanted to throw a tomato at the speakers because they know not to whom they sing. They know not of whom they sing. And yet in church, Christians won't sing. We ought to be singing hallelujah. Hallelujah? Yes. Because we praise God. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And to open your hymnal and be indifferent doesn't make sense. Here's another way we can be a loving church by worshiping with one another. Set an example of love for the preached word. Set an example of love for the preached word. I work this into a sermon as often as I can, no matter the topic. We love your children, but your fussy child is not more important than those around you who need to hear God's word. We have a nursery. We have not lost one yet. Why does your cell phone need to be on? Would you bring your cell phone into the throne room of God? I'm convinced that at the great white throne judgment, cell phones are going into the lake of fire. And it is no coincidence that cell rhymes with hell. In 2018, I counted 32 times the cell phone went off while I was preaching. And now some of these cells are going to go off right now and you're going to feel condemned, I know. Let me give you one way to be an example of love for the preached word. Get a good night's sleep on Saturday. Be boring and tell everybody I'm going to bed at nine o'clock so that you can be alive and attentive here. There's nothing more discouraging to a preacher and to a congregant to see somebody dying of sleep deprivation. And one more, and this is easy, stay for a few minutes. Stay for a few minutes. One of the blessings of Sunday evening service is the opportunity to cherish and develop relationships. I mean, we even have a, we even have a joke that you don't want to be stuck here as the last one with a key to the building because there's so many people still talking. It's always my goal to be the second to last one with a key here. 
But take time to be with one another and don't be exclusively constantly stuck to just one other person. Mingle a little bit. Here's a phrase. Let me teach you this phrase. It's really hard. My name is, and stick your hand out. Seize these opportunities. They're precious to us. You don't know when you won't have them again. Let me give you a third way to be a loving church. Learn with one another. We look out for one another. We worship with one another. Third, learn with one another. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And I'm going to camp on this point for a bit. Verse 33 of Acts chapter 4. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. This is a very short and very uh, abbreviated way to say that the apostles were preaching Christ with a particular emphasis on his resurrection. But like we saw in Acts 2.42, the the apostles were teaching the word of God. The the members were devoted to this teaching. The apostles were teaching and proclaiming Christ from the Old Testament, as I mentioned in the previous message. They were expository preachers. They were exposing a text and explaining the text. This was the pattern in Acts. Why expository preaching? Why do we not just tell some stories and try to attach a Bible verse to it to make it seem Christian? Why are we passionate about the the primacy of Scripture? Why is that? Let me give you a couple reasons. You don't have to write these down because there's a lot of them. Why expository preaching? It fulfills the command of Scripture to preach the Word. It follows the examples of the apostles in Acts. It follows the example of Christ. It ensures that God speaks for Himself in the way that He's spoken. It elevates God's Word to its proper authoritative and exalted place in the church. There's a reason the pulpit is the highest point in the church. It unleashes the transforming power of God's Word. It models for you how to read and study your Bible. It teaches people how salvation fits into the overall message of Scripture. It creates a love for the Bible instead of an endurance for the Bible. It equips members for your personal ministry of the Word of God. It gives preachers confidence and authority. It gives listeners confidence that the preacher is speaking with God's authority and not his own. It is the common sense approach to Scripture. Expository preaching arms you, the congregation, for spiritual warfare with truth. You're armed with truth to combat the lies of the devil. It challenges the spiritual life of the preacher. The use of cross-references and biblical illustrations teaches you the Bible at an exponentially faster rate. It forces you, the church, and me, the preacher, to deal with the uncomfortable topics and texts of Scripture. It demonstrates and it proves that we value the whole counsel of God. It keeps the pastor from preaching his three topics of interest over and over again while neglecting everything else. It guards you against false teaching. And my favorite one of all is that expository preaching preaches Christ and results in the salvation of souls. And when I talk about preaching Christ and I think about preaching Christ, this is so exciting to me. Because it's through the pulpit that Christ is exalted and it's through the the words of, of Christ that he's exalted and magnified and then through your life that he's magnified. And when I think of this, I, and I, I can't help this, but I turn again to the expository genius and the shepherd's heart of Charles Spurgeon. He was passionate about preaching Christ 
from the word of God. He said this, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all hell shake. But the sermon which does not lead to Christ is the sort of sermon that will make the devils laugh and might make the angels of God weep. And he said this, I am certain that no minister of God ever repented of preaching Christ too much. Do we ever get weary of hearing the word of God? Do we ever get weary of being reminded over and over again? The apostle Peter didn't think so. He wrote to mature believers in 2 Peter and he opens by reminding them of the qualities of a mature, growing, thriving believer. These qualities are virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then in verses 12 through 15 of 2 Peter 1, he writes words which burn in my own heart. They, they guide me. They motivate me in my own ministry. He says in 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Listen to this. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Sometimes I encourage somebody to go through Bible Training Institute and somebody will say, well, I already know those things. What, what does that have to do with anything? We want to hear the truth again. The key words in that verse, always and remind. He's writing things they know. And yet he says, I'm going to tell you one more time. He says in verse 13, as long as I am in this body, I will stir you up by way of reminder. It's a word to stir up means to wake you up, to rouse you, to promote something that is good. And then, and, and, and this is the calling and the hope and the delight and the mission of every biblical preacher. He says in verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Why do we repeat the truths of God over and over again? So that at any time you may be able to recall these things. As all followers of Christ are technically disciples. But did you know what a disciple really is in the strictest sense of the word? It's the Greek word mathetes, which is translated disciple 100% of the time. And it's used over 250 times in the New Testament. It's a big word. But it just simply means a learner. A learner. A disciple of Christ isn't just a follower of Christ. He's a learner. Because how can you adequately follow him whom you don't know very much about? That doesn't make sense. If you don't hunger and thirst for the knowledge of Christ, you can't, you can't follow him adequately. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with being a loving church? I thought we were about to talk about church socials and pies and things like that. Well, let me, let me draw this together. You can learn in books. I highly recommend it. We have our own on-site bookstore to promote this. You can also study on your own. I hope you do. We teach you how to do that. You can listen to sermons by yourself. We also encourage this. Our entire website, Steadfast in the Faith, is, is for that very purpose. But the loving church puts a premium on learning together on gathering together to learn of Christ in the unique dynamic of physically being together. If you're listening to a sermon and the preacher says something you're uncomfortable with, you can just hit pause. You can't pause me. I'm going to look you in the eye and tell you that you need to live for Christ. You're going to see other people around you who are nodding and whispering, amen, and Lord, help me to do this. And you're going to have that deep accountability of gathering together. 
the disciples on the road to Emmaus listened to Jesus Christ himself preach a message about himself from the entire Old Testament. And you know what their assessment was later? They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he did what? Open to us the scriptures. They experienced this together. Learn with one another. Let me give you one more way to be a loving church. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2. Fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another. And I saved this one for last because we tend to think that this is what being a loving church is, but I wanted to wait and give you those other three. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Not only did the church gather together as one group, but they met in homes. And you can extrapolate every possible application to this. We apply this by the the, the basis, being the basis for eating meals together in our homes. It's the basis for being hospitable and, and not waiting for others to always be the ones to be hospitable. This is the basis and precedent for small group ministry. Some churches require that every single member be part of a small group. We're not there yet, but I'd love to get there. Some have seen it as the basis in some traditions for Sunday school classes where you gather in smaller groups either before or after the large corporate gathering. The bottom line is just about any application of Acts 2.46 is a good application. This idea of fellowshipping together is good and it's, it's wholesome. Now I understand that some people are naturally more outgoing naturally more hospitable or maybe your life is in a in a circumstance where you're able to do that and so i don't want to speak to you for a minute you're you're already saying amen i want to speak to a different group those of you and we have to acknowledge that this is real those of you that at times perhaps feel a little bit more on the outside that don't feel quite a part of things feel a little bit left out i ache for you i pray for you i hurt for you but you have basically two choices. Choice number one, we could just call the road most often traveled, the response most people make, and that is to passively wait for someone else to fix this, for the church to start a program or a ministry and to invite you to it. And if it doesn't happen eventually, then you do what the typical uninvolved church member does to write a letter or an email to the pastor or to the elders and blame them and blame the church for your lack of involvement as you go to find a church that will cater to your passive needs. That's choice number one, the road most often traveled. Or you have choice number two, that is we'll just call the road less traveled. Obey the scriptures for yourself and fellowship with the body. Make your own personal ministry of loving others. Don't wait for somebody else to figure it out for you. Make your own personal ministry. Do you have a plan? Have you identified those to whom you could be a blessing? Have you identified those that you could come alongside with in a, in a ministry? Are you committed to being here and speaking to others? I, I hurt for these people, and I have had people come to me and say, well, but you see, I'm shy can I just be as gently blunt as I can? Could I wrap lambskin around a baseball bat just for a moment? (laughs) Most often, shyness is simply a form of pride is all it is because you're more afraid of what someone may think of you than you are able to reach out to another person. Shyness is at its core selfish because it only thinks of yourself. Again, how do we get over that? 
You walk up to somebody and stick your hand out and say, hi, my name is, what's yours? Listen, it's not my intention to be overly straightforward about this. I've never been accused of being subtle. But the fact is, is that the complaint, I don't get enough fellowship opportunities is epidemic in the American church. It is epidemic. And leadership generally responds by trying to create another program, by trying to be more involved in your life than you're involved in your own life, by being more invested in your fellowship than you're invested in your fellowship. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Roman Christians who were in danger of being crucified, burned alive, or eaten by wild animals were whispering to one another, boy, I wish our church would start a supper club. Do you think the Thessalonian church who was evangelizing two different Roman provinces while being persecuted were saying, I don't feel our church is social enough for me? Or do you think the church at Smyrna to whom Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death. Do you think they said, we're mad in leaving the church because the pastor doesn't pay enough attention to me? That's ridiculous. Their fellowship was based on their common bond of service together. If I could put it this way, don't just be part of the body to get fellowship. Be part of the body to give fellowship. And every one of you has that gift. Who are you praying for? And do they know it? Who are you confiding in? Are you being real? Who are you studying God's word with in Sunday school, in a small group, one-on-one? And this is church at the deep relational level where your church becomes like family. I'll preach to just about anyone who will listen long enough, but one of the things that just, just makes my heart sink, and I don't believe we have this problem here, but we do have to watch out for it, is to see a church where nobody actually is real, where there's no vital relationships, there's not a web of relationships being formed and developed. I don't have biological extended family in Bakersfield, I don't even have family in California. I don't even have family in this time zone. But I do have a family, and you're it. And you're important to me. And I know I'm important to you, and you should be important to one another. This is a family large enough that we couldn't spend enough time together in a hundred lifetimes, so we need to get started. So to be a loving church, it's not really that complicated. Look out for one another, worship with one another, learn with one another, and fellowship with one another. In fact, it's that very phrase, one another, that's used 59 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated one another, sometimes it's translated each other to speak of how the church is to be a loving church. And so like credits rolling in order of appearance, be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. Those are from the mouth of Christ. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Have equal concern for one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul loved that one. Serve one another in love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other.
Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Give one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider... Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. It was God's will that that one was loud. Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use his gift as he has received it to serve one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And as you might expect, the Bible ends with this crescendo of love one another, 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 love one another. Do you think the New Testament wants us to love one another. I think it's clear. Remember the church at Ephesus who lost their first love? To whom Christ warned, return to your first love or I will remove your lampstand. This was a second and third generation in the church. Perhaps they had grown complacent. It was likely that not everyone was regenerate. There were some unbelievers in the church certainly contributing to the overall effect of a colder church. And how did the church do? How did they fare under the warning of Christ? Well, history tells us there is no church in Ephesus now because there is no Ephesus now. And you might say, well, that's an ancient city. They're all dead. No, there's a church in Thessalonica today. By Paul's day, the port of Ephesus was slowly filling with silt from the Caestor River Desperate attempts to clean it up were to no avail. When Paul visited Ephesus, Ephesus was three miles from the new coastline and connected to the sea channels by one little narrow sea channel, a port entrance. And this was very metaphorical for how the church at Ephesus was once great with love and passion for Christ, but the threat of complete shutdown was upon it and they had one channel left. Remember and return to your first love. Ephesus suffered a terrible earthquake in the 7th century, and by the 15th century, the city was abandoned completely. Why is that? I believe it's because the church at Ephesus failed. And they abandoned their first love, and the lampstand was removed. However, if we strive to be a loving church, we can be in full agreement with the admonition of the Apostle Paul, who said, listen carefully, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together, that same word with one mind, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And the reason? For the glory of God. Why ought we to strive to be a loving church? So we can attract people? That'll just happen naturally. We ought to strive to be a loving church because it gives God glory. Amen?
Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our attention now to think upon Christ in the Lord's table. We are thankful for the church of Jesus Christ, and Lord, it is um, incumbent upon us to love the bride because we love the heavenly husband, and that is Christ. And, and we would pray, Lord, for our time right now. We pray, Lord, that as we approach the table of Christ, the Lord's table, that we would come with confessed hearts, with pure hearts and clean hearts, and we would come in thankfulness and gratitude. It is that which you asked us to do in order to demonstrate our love for you, to remember the body and the blood of Christ. And so we enter into this most unique and most special time of all Christian worship, the Lord's table, and we give you thanks for this table, and we pray your blessing upon it. In Christ's name, amen.